Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is C. Loof. C. Loof got his start in life in a small Nebraska town of 105 people, where polka dances were events to look forward to, and the village tavern doubled as family fine dining. Fast forward a few states of travel, and almost 50 years later, and Loof now calls Omaha home, along with his best girl, a female beta fish named Jack. Loof knew from a very young age he would accomplish many things and wear many hats in life. He would be an actor, a writer, a radio DJ, a parent, pastor, and a poet. He would also be a good man. He has fulfilled those roles, still occupies many, and looks forward to more. Not all of them were easy, especially becoming a good man. Lou started life, essentially, as a girl. C, welcome to the show. Hi, welcome to me as well. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Describe your hometown when you were a child. When I was a child, it was idyllic. It was about 12 blocks, give or take. Um, 105 people, like I said, they were all family. You could think you were getting away with everything and going everywhere without supervision, but at the same time, you were being supervised well. If you disrespected someone or were out of line, it didn't matter who your parents were. Somebody else's parents corrected you, and uh, you would think that perhaps you weren't going to be told on by them, but when you got home, your parents knew about it as well, or in my case, you know, grandparents but it was it was idyllic. It was freedom. It was grass. It was uh, learning things that city kids didn't ever know. It was long distance to call uh, the nearest big town, which was Lincoln, uh, which was only about 15, 20 miles away. So if you had something that was worth telling, you just drove there because it cost too much to call. It was laundry bees and canning and helping the elderly with their sidewalks and walking to them to the post office. It was it was just a, a different era, a different time. It was a long time ago, but it was also country living. But we weren't hickish, really. At least we didn't think so. Perhaps we were. Describe the town a little bit. You mentioned it was 12 blocks. Yeah. And obviously, we're getting the sense that it's compact and small. Yeah. It was, there was a moratorium on building, so there was no way in, in Hades that you could make the town bigger. If you wanted to live there, someone had to die or leave, and that's still the way it is. The houses, the properties are upwards to $150,000 per house, and these are tiny little houses. It's such a bedroom town now, and cities are expanding, you know. So in order to get to live there, seriously, someone has to die or they have to move out, and nobody moves out. Folks read the obituaries, so there'll be an insurgence of new residents every 40 years or so um, when people kick the bucket. Um, and there's been a population explosion. I think it's up to 155 now um, because sincerely several families adopted some kids. They were It's mostly a Catholic town, and uh, three or four families adopted five or six kids. There's one post office there that's still functioning, and there was at the time the tavern and the community hall and um, there was a, at the time I thought it was a pasture, but it's just two lots, two houses that, that uh, confined this community pony named Queenie that we all got to ride whenever we were passing by. It was owned by the, the gentleman that owned the tavern at the time. And he could, he could see at the window if she was being mistreated, but we all just got on our bareback and rode around the pasture, which was actually just two house lots. But we were small and it was big and, you know, in comparison, um, there were 
giant mountains of gravel, which were just little hills that we used to slide down in laundry baskets and helmets that were too big for us and railroad tracks that were just a few miles, literally, honestly, a few miles down the way that we would go and run from the hobos that never existed and things like that. We locked each other in barns and um, climbed trees and played the unpolitically correct cowboys and Indians and tied each other to trees and tied each other to trees <laughs> and tied each other to trees often. Um, I got left to trees a couple times when it was dinner time because they literally rang dinner bells or yelled and you know, the persons that tied me up would forget to untie. And I locked my fair share of people in barns to get revenge. At laundry bees, I mean, we all went with our elders to uh, to help with, with laundry on different days and different times so that the women could gossip and converse and that sort of thing. I mean, it was it was 70s, you know, late 60s, early 70s, and it was long enough ago where people still followed older traditions, and it was still isolated enough where it was easier to do it homemade than it was to go into town and, and all that. And the traditions were still instilled enough that uh, it was just... It was fun, you know, as a community at large to do that sort of thing. Well, you use the word idyllic. You kind of give me this kind of image of uh, kids riding ponies, but but then um, tying each other to trees. Uh, it just sounds like good. We all amazing, took turns. But... I mean, we all took turns being the bad guy. There was only one individual who scared us, but he also taught me about God. And that was, his first name was Mike. And he was about my father's age. And there was this tree. The thing to do was to swing on the swing that was tied to the tree, to the branch. And it wasn't to, you, you didn't want to jump off and fly. You wanted to swing so high that you could kick the branch it was tied to. Um, that was the goal. And if you didn't at least try, then you were considered a chicken. And if, if, you, if you did and failed, then you were cool. But if you, if you didn't do it at all, then you probably tried tied to a tree more often than not. Mike did it when he was uh, seven. So this was in the mid fifties and he fell off and medicine being what it was when he cracked his skull, um, he was permanently seven and he cracked his skull and hurt his back and he was permanently disfigured, uh, with his head. And he also hurt his back enough where he was permanently disfigured with his spine. And he scared the heck out of me because no one had ever explained to me what had happened to him or what that meant. I just thought he was, you know, someone like a Disney character of, of, Hunchback of Notre Dame or something like that. And he was slow. And again, nobody had ever explained that. I was more polite to look away. You know, I learned later that that wasn't true, but I was scared of him. So when I was four and a half and my next door neighbor who was closest to me in age is about nine, uh, got a bow and arrow set for, for his birthday. He asked me if I wanted to shoot him. I said, yeah, shoot him because he scared me. And he didn't. And I knew that rationally, but my four and a half year old brain thought that he did. And I knew that he was still living, you know, um, he would come to visit us. So of course he was still living, but my brain just thought that I had killed him, you know, as that split dichotomy of childhood thinking, I suppose. But, uh, but later in life and when I was about 18 or so, God had a sense of humor. He, uh, he put that man behind me on the bus every single day to and from work at the same time for a year. Um, and then when I quit that job, I worked in a hospital and I only had one patient and that was his sister, um, who laughed her butt off when I told her the story. So yeah, there's a cosmic sense of humor to teach you, <laughs> to teach you things, even when you're start learning when you're like four. So, but yeah, so there was, there was someone that was the, the whatever of the town, but he also in retrospect taught me so many lessons because he, he couldn't read and he couldn't do math, but he could remember everything 
that he listened to, every fact. Um, so you, you watched your tongue around him because there's nothing that he forgot ever. He knew everybody's birthday, everybody's gossip, you know, everything. So he was, he was an eidetic memory in, embodied. Um, he just couldn't, I mean, if you read him a book, he memorized it, but he couldn't read one himself. Um, and he was gracious and kind and, um, was a sweet man. But as a child, he was scary because we, we weren't taught what we should have been back then, you know. You've touched a little on the color of the town, the sort of texture of life there. And you've talked a little bit about, you know, childhood shenanigans and, <laughs> and friendships that, mm -hmm. that you had. Tell us about your, tell us about your family. Uh, my family is a two-week Oprah Winfrey special. Um, yeah, there's there's really too many tender details in there, but I, I was primarily raised by my grandmother. Um, my grandfather was out, you know, being a, a breadwinner. My father and mother lived apart more than they did together. My father isn't my father, but he's my father of record. Um, Mom left when I was 10. Uh, Dad was always preoccupied with something else, so I stayed with Grandma. Um, she was, she was my heart, and I wasn't related to uh, them by blood at all. Um, so those are the the gritty facts. Um, and uh, I was I was for many me. My grandmother raised me. She taught me most of the bad habits that I have, and uh, my bad sense of humor, and all that sort of thing. We just got along very well. She was the first person to touch me in life. She said, and when she died, I was the last person to touch her. Yes, yeah, so I, I think that was a good circle lived. I was. Always a loud mouth, and I always got myself in trouble. Uh, I was very precocious. I don't know if it was because so much attention was spent on me, and I was told often that I was the favorite when you should never tell a child they're the favorite. But I was, and I learned not to look away from people, you know, that had disabilities or didn't look the same, that sort of thing. Um, I enjoyed difference, and, and maybe that's what made it so easy for me to be myself. Because I enjoyed difference, I, I got in so much trouble um, because I didn't act the norm, in quotes. Um, Let me just quickly ask, do you have siblings? <laughs> um, I had less than I thought years ago. Um, I have a half-sister who, who shares the same mother as me. My mother um, was mentally ill. She's passed now. But she, when she was living, she told me that I had several half-sisters and a couple half-brothers. I looked for them for ages and I could not find them. And I later learned that they didn't exist. So I thought that I had more of a family than I did, but my sister, um, she just started talking to me again after eight years of, of silence. So that's a, a nice reunion, but uh, I did know that she existed because I, she was tangible to me and I helped her raise her. So we had a relationship. So yeah, I have one. I want to ask when you first started to have this sense yourself that your identity was going to defy some of the norms you saw around you. When I was sent to kindergarten, um, because I went to a Catholic school, and prior to that, 
I just thought I was one of the boys. There was one girl that lived in Davie and then the rest of us were boys. And I say the rest of us because that's who I hung out with. I was not interested in dolls or pink things or um, the traditional girl stuff. I was pretty much let to run around in just a pair of shorts with a bowl cut like every other kid. And when we had to go to the bathroom, we stood on a ledge and we peed. And I just thought that I didn't do it as well as they did because my penis hadn't grown in yet because I was the youngest. I mean, it seemed logical. Nobody told me any different. And then when I had to go to kindergarten and I was put in a skirt and a white blouse and sent off to school in saddle shoes, it broke my heart because they explained to me that I was not a boy and I didn't know how quite to handle that. Back then there wasn't therapy for kids. There were priests. Um, so you talk to the priests and then the priest talked to my grandmother and my grandmother, she didn't talk to me, but she, she uh, later said that she knew I was queer from a long time before that. She was just hoping I'd never find out. And when I found out she was devastated and didn't know how to handle it. So she just never said a word. So yeah, it was, it was about five, five years old. So you talk about having this realization towards kindergarten mm -hmm. age. So how did your sense of your body being biologically female, but not representing how you encountered the world or you encountered your own internal identity, how did that start to shift and change both for you as an individual and, and, and in how you encountered the world as you continue to grow up? My defiance started just as wearing shorts under my skirt <laughs> because you weren't supposed to, so I did anyway. Um, and instead of being a girl, I was a horse. Um, I would make my my best friend, Kim, um, <laughs> drive me around the playground with a jump rope in my mouth. Um, and I'm okay in admitting that. Um, someone told me that glue was made out of horse's hooves, and if you ate enough of it, the spirit of the glue would go into your body and change you into a horse. But nobody explained to me that it wasn't Elmer's glue that did that. So all I got was strong bones. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I tried to be a horse instead of a girl, um, and that didn't work. Uh, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got very good bone strength right now. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, I was one of those that developed very young. At that point in time, I started living with my father, um, who was a very inappropriate gentleman, and it just made things even extra difficult. But at about... Uh, 11 and a half, 12 years old, um, I, I found drugs and alcohol and stayed pretty much stoned and drunk until I was about 20. Um, what, what was the cause of you beginning to abuse those substances around that age? I'm trying to understand in my head, it almost seems too young to understand the implications of feeling like you were male inside a female body. So I'm, I'm really curious about what it was that tipped you into that abuse situation so early. Um, the first memory I have, uh, and, and I could lay it out for you detail by detail, but the first memory I have was about nine or ten months of age, um, and it was of my father uh, molesting me. And my father and grandfather did in great detail. My mother didn't touch me, but she was very inappropriate with the literature choices and the and the film choices and things like that. Um, and it was extensive. And the last time my father attempted something, I was 19. Um, and my grandfather was just sexual abuse. My father's uh, abuse was sexual, um, physical, mental. Um, 
So I preferred going over to grandma's house because it was three layers less. Um, so just to dull the pain um, and to escape uh, drugs and alcohol made it very easy to do that. I'm so sorry to hear that. I had misunderstood. I thought some of that substance abuse was because of you trying to navigate the difficulty of being, feeling as if your identity wasn't matched by your body. It it had, well, yeah, it had a lot to do with that because I was going through that, but I was also going through the fact where I was, I, you know, I was being used as a, a toy, I suppose, or an object. Um, so I had the gender dysphoria on top of the fact that, that the femaleness was being shoved in my face all the time. Um, I also had, I didn't have really any, any bottom dysphoria, but I had chest dysphoria um, because I was very large chested and I just, I needed to not be there and um, being able to dissociate um, helped, but being a stone helped too. So I spent a lot of time stoned and drunk. Thanks for sharing, C. spoke before and I confess that I was struggling to work out. Um, I suspect for many people, they struggle to get to grips with what it feels like to feel as if you are one gender, but to occupy the body of a different gender. Is it possible for you to describe that both that awakening for you, that realization, and and how you how you would describe that. I suppose for me it was probably different than it is for a lot of people, or or maybe not. But I I just I always believed that I was male. So for me it was more of a heartbreak because when I was told, because I wasn't told any different for most of my well for all of my life until I was, you know, I I was a big rough and tumble kid. When I was born, I was eleven pounds. Um, <laughs> you, you just made a face audience. <laughs> um, so I was a rough and tumble kid. I was, I was bigger than my three month old cousin. I, I was sturdy. I was a tomboy anyway, is what people would call me. And I, I just grew up thinking I was one of the boys, you know, and for five years, for all of my life, you know, until they did. And then I was heartbroken. Um, so I, I believed what I believed, what I knew to be true until somebody told me that I was wrong. So for me, it was heartbreak. And then it was, um, just continued heartbreak and frustration and anger because I had to stuff down what I knew to be was right for either conforming so that I could survive or um, having to do for others all the time. Um, because when mom left, I had to take care of my sister. To survive, I had to conform to what my father wanted. You know, so it was always having to stuff down what I wanted and what I needed to do for everybody else. And sometimes that just meant killing a part of myself and and hurting it so badly so that it didn't raise its head so that I could I could just function. Um and that's kind of like it's just having a part of you be so so dead. I mean imagine 
having a passion for something, a, a talent or a passion for something or a joy for something that you just want to do so badly, but you know that you can't. Um, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but but if you if you play an instrument or if you paint or something and you're told that you could never do that again and you're so destroyed about it, you know, so you can't even think about it. Um, it it's sort of like that, I suppose, but 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 different, I guess. What did you think was happening to you as your body started to make pretty ordinary biological changes and that just didn't fit your understanding of, of oh, how I, things Oh, I knew. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm smart. I, I knew. Um, I, I was over-sexualized, um, so I, I wasn't ignorant. Um, it, 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 was, it wasn't a case of not knowing what's happening to me. It was just a case of knowing what couldn't happen. Yeah. It, uh, there was no, there was no misconceptions, and there was no, um, there was no wondering or anything like that. I just knew it couldn't happen. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is C. Loof. Turning a little bit to the language that is used to describe all sorts of issues that feel intimate and problematic, mm -hmm. and some may pejoratively think of as politically correct, and others may simply be well-intentioned, but perhaps like me, a little bit too ignorant of the sensitivity around language. So I, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about maybe some of the language that you like to use when you talk about the issues of transgender or homosexuality or sexual orientation, and maybe some of the misconceptions too that, that maybe exist in the language. Um, I told you I like to get in trouble. I mean, I get in trouble all the time, right? Uh, there's a, a trans woman in Lincoln who says it's very important to use whatever language you feel comfortable self-identifying as. She's very politically correct, and I adore her. Um, so I just use the word trainee because I like to hear her grit her teeth. Um, I, I started going to a, a gay bar when I was 15 in Lincoln. It was a very inappropriate place. It was owned by a man that, that enjoyed very young men. Um, but to keep everybody quiet, he allowed youth in. Um, which was not appropriate, not legal, um, but it was also a very safe place for us to be because we were contained by our kith and kin and we weren't beaten up, you know, until we tried to go home. But therefore, my my peer group was about 20, 30 years older than me. And these were folks that, 
you know, grew up in the 60s and and it was the civil rights era, 70s, the Harvey Milk era, that sort of thing. And I learned that civil rights mindset. I was the head of Queer Nation Nebraska and I, I picketed, I uh, was a victim of arson. I, I did a lot of things that were civilly, um, civilly minded, I suppose. Owning language and using language that you find offensive, to me, takes the power out of it. I like the word queer because it is multi-layered. Um, queer covers sexuality. It covers gender expression. Um, it covers the fact that you might be a, a, a cisgender, and I hate the term cis. That means that you were um, born with a penis and identify as male and like it. But you might be a cisgender person and you might be married to a transgender person. Um, so it, it's multi-leveled and multi-layered. So queer, queer encompasses everybody. Um, it's easy. And I don't like the, the acronym that we have currently with all the, um, LGBTQAA2 plus, because it, it's not equitable because there's this, there's this, um, the S, you know, for sapiosexual, um, it's, it describes people who are attracted to smart people. Okay. Well, duh. But. In addition, if you are attracted to individuals who are not so smart, that's okay. But there's no there's no word for it because if there was, then are, people assume that you're you're using an entire group of demographic of people, you know. But why is it okay then to be attracted to smart people? I mean, there's the flip side isn't equal, and it should be. Um, and there's no bears are a thing, you know. But what about fat people in general. No, you can't, you can't like them because, well, that would be using, you know, a whole majority of folks. But, but if you're hairy and fat, well, that's, that's a bear, you know, it's just, it's not equitable across. And people complain about being labeled, but then in our group, we label the heck out of people, you know, it's just, it's just stupid. So I, I just like queer and occasionally I'll use Soji, which is um, sexual orientation, gender identity, because that covers everybody too. And there's this objectum sexual you know, people fall in love with objects and in some places they can marry them. I mean, really? <laughs> really? It, and no, it's <laughs> so queer. I mean, queer covers it. If you're going to marry an object, you can be called queer, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I was Skyping my mother and I said, oh, I'm doing this interview tomorrow. And I explained that we were going to chat. And she said, well, I, I don't understand. And I said, well, you know, it's it's just that this this gentleman was was born female but but didn't identify that way and how do you approach people that are trying honestly and openly but perhaps badly to navigate understanding your viewpoint on the world and and not that this is your job in some ways i feel like it's really offensive to say i'll put you in a test tube and you explain things to me if people seem honest and maybe they're misstepping in some way how do you help them to understand that this is how your life is? How do you help people understand what it's like in England? I mean, it, it is our job, I think. And I'm I'm not the, the usual transgender individual. I think it is my job to answer questions as long as they're not intimate and offensive. I mean, that stuff you can look up on Google. But But it is because people – People usually are just basically good. It takes a lot of effort to be icky. And I, I, I speak at um, panels a lot. I 
give brown bag lunch talks. Um, I've even given them for the city. I answer questions and I also walk into a room most of the time thinking that everybody loves me because that gives me the the confidence to be able to answer questions because people, they're generally curious, you know, we're, we're born that way. And hopefully we keep that throughout our lives because if we don't and we stop learning and growing, then we're just a waste of flesh. Uh, and people don't generally mean to hurt anybody else, not generally. And if we are just normal, if everybody is just normal with everybody else, then we display the fact that everybody is normal. You know, we're not freaks of nature. We're not, you know, we're not freaks. We're not just anomalies. We're just people. So, so I approach people like that. And my favorite thing is to get to know them and they have no idea for a week or two, you know, and then they're, oh my God, really? Really? And then, yeah. And then they find out and they, they're like embarrassed that they didn't know, or I'm so sorry. It's like, what? You know, why? I like shrimp too. I mean, you know, whatever. And then we just have a conversation. Um, and like my, my new roommate is, she, she had no idea, you know, and so she has all these questions and she's very embarrassed about them, but they're, they're no big deal. I mean, they're very innocent, basic questions, you know? So I answer them. I mean, people have questions about everything and, and we should. And if you don't want to explain them, then just simply say, you know, that's personal and I'd rather not, but I'll give you a link, you know? Um, and that's okay too. It's just up to the comfort of the person that's being asked. But if somebody is genuinely asking because they seriously want to know and better themselves, then be okay with that or give them the information and how they can find it. To the degree that you feel comfortable, and we've spoken a little bit about this before, and I know it's relatively more recent in terms of the span of your life, mm -hmm. but to the degree to which you feel comfortable, are you able to talk about the process, that the practicalities of physically making transition? Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you what I will do and what I won't do ever, uh, what I have done, um, as long as it's not intimate or offensive. I will not have phalloplasty, which is the operation to create a penis, um, because the results are still not great. Um, and the failure rate is still pretty high. There are three very painful, very expensive operations in order to create one result. Um, they either take a patch that's about as big as half a notebook and they they blow it up and expand the skin. Then they shave it off and it's either on your arm or your thigh. They take a vein from your thigh um, and then they turn your parts inside out. Um, you have to do some electrolysis and then they attempt to make a, a penis and sometimes it, it works and sometimes it doesn't. If you want to use it for sex, it has to have an implant that you pump up and then you release it. Really? No. Um, and then when you... When you get it done, if you need to urinate, sometimes it leaks out of the base and then it has to heal. And I'm not down for that. So I had just chest surgery. Um, and because I'm probably never going to be, you know, thin, um, I had a plastic surgeon do it. And I specifically asked for man boobs um, because looking like the letter D or the letter B, depending upon how you stand, just that doesn't look normal to me. So um, I, I had a realistic looking body created and, and it'll get smaller as I get smaller or bigger as I get bigger. And then the uh, masculinization um, comes from hormones, testosterone. Um, and, and I will say that it's, it's easier for female to male individuals to look masculine than it is for male to female individuals to look feminine because the hormones pretty much do the work for trans guys. But in most cases, for trans women, they need uh, a lot of electrolysis for their face and uh, feminizing surgery and things like that. Um, there are a few that 
that can use makeup and and they're feminine looking anyway um that don't need that but but most of it is is it's more difficult for for the the women because and they're also taller and their stature is a little bigger and stuff too so you know so how the world treats people of different gender generally is fraught with its own array of discrimination and prejudice and privilege mm -hmm. would you share with us a little bit about some of how you have experienced the world as female and as male and also how the world has projected itself on you yeah. in in those two genders um women are pretty much invisible um <laughs> I see you. You have a pink dress on or pink sweater on. Um, but in 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 the scuffle of the whole bathroom thing, trans men, nobody saw them. It was the trans women that got the kerfuffle because um, they were men. No, they're, well, they're not. But and and they were busy trying to trying to keep their skirts straight and all that sort of thing and get in and out before they got pounded in order to. Yeah, they weren't going to do anything. They were just you know frightened. They wanted to go pee. But nobody really mentioned the trans guys, even if they looked feminine. Because if you were a chick and went in and out of the men's room, they thought, oh, that's a mistake. You know, they, they just left you alone. And very few men approach a woman in the men's restroom because they don't want to get in trouble, you know. Um, and most, gosh, I'm sorry, but most men are still a little sexist towards women. And if not a lot. I got a lot of male privilege, a ton. And the male privilege that I was given came from women. I would try to open a door for a woman and she would stand back and hold it open for me and say, no, 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 you go first. And I would get special treatment from, from women that disdained me before. And it wasn't from everyone, but the majority of it, it really was. And that let me see yeah, how, how, how unbalanced it was before and it's not every woman of course you know it's not but it, the, the majority of it was and it, it inspired me to to teach my goddaughter things differently a little bit because i don't want her to have to you know surrender and submit like like i was experiencing some of these people doing um and i was really surprised that the male privilege i got was given to me by females um and I was surprised that I enjoyed it so much. It was, wow, <laughs> it was it was some power. But I got used to not enjoying it after a while. It was, you know, it was fun, but it was also uh, unnecessary and kind of gross. But I had to learn to do, um, you know, the head nod and the bro hug and all that sort of thing too. So, I mean, there was a learning curve there. I fix broken hearts, I know I really can. 
And of course, I'm nodding along with the fact that I'm a white man. There's this degree of privilege, right? But mm -hmm. the thing is, most people don't perceive the privilege they have because they've not existed without it. Right. So for someone like me, it's really hard to understand quickly the sense that I'm existing in a privileged moment right? because I've never experienced life without that. You occupy a completely different life trajectory. So in that sense, again, this is not your job, but have you found that being the activist you are, that you have found that you are a really good spokesperson for the idea of gender equality? Yeah, I think so. Um, not only gender equality, but racial equality too. Um, I will never be a brown person, but I do work with uh, homeless folks. And I'm not saying brown people are homeless by any means, but in talking with the guys that I work with, the disparagement and the treatment that they get, um, depending upon their race, is just, it's gross. And in my life, never before have I been in a situation or have had the opportunity to be able to talk with men because men will not talk to a woman like they talk to a man. So the honesty that I've been getting the last four or five years, um, because I am taken as male, has been totally different. Um, it's been it's been breathtaking. Guys won't talk to to women like they talk to guys. It's it's not locker room, but it's you know it's it's coffee house. You know it's it's or it's cafe, I guess. So yeah, so the the gender thing and and I mean it, it absolutely, and I and I care for more for for all gender equality now that I see the differences, and as I enjoy being myself more, uh, it it reflects on the differences as well more too. You talked about all the way back to kindergarten mm -hmm. being an age when you started to have this sense of realization about your identity and 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 how that was going to shift and shape and and change, but you didn't make an active effort at transitioning until much more recently. Yeah, forty four. So what what happened in the interim when you weren't? making any steps to change, but you still had this sense that you were a man inside a woman's mm -hmm. body. I, I tried. Um, I tried a couple times, but when you're, when you're queer, um, and, and even if you feel, feel trans or know that you're trans or, or gender fluid or whatever you want to identify yourself as, the only way that you can be around the uh, LGBT I have to check myself because it used to be GLBT. Um, the LGBT community is to identify with a person or a population that you look like. Okay, so I looked female, so I had to identify with the females because gay men wouldn't have anything to do with me. And when I would approach a group of lesbians and tell them how I felt, I got um, I got nasty. <laughs> Why would you want to mutilate yourself? Why do you want to be a man? Why do you want to betray your, your sisterhood? Um, well, it wasn't my sisterhood, and I had been a man. I just, you know, couldn't do it. And then in addition, I was busy taking care of my sister or my partner or, um, or, 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 you know, I really couldn't do for myself. But when I reached the age of my mid forties, we weren't trying to adopt anymore because the, the state hadn't caught up to the fact that all humans were kind of equal. And in order to adopt, we couldn't, I couldn't be a trans person. I had to be a gender specific person um, and a cis person. And then, then you could ad adopt the kid out of foster care. 
if you were that different, then your chances were squished. So when we stopped trying to adopt, then I, I could be whoever I needed to be or, or had to be. So that that's really what released me is I was free of obligation to others and I could be of obligation to myself. Talk a little bit more about your activist life. On the inside, I was always trying to um, break boundaries on the outside. I, in, in Nebraska, did things like, well, the queer nation thing, and um, did a lot with the AIDS community. Uh, used to, I started with the AIDS, the AIDS movement in, in the um, mid-80s. Uh, just because I was personally involved in it. We had no idea what AIDS was. And um, my beard boyfriend thought that he had AIDS and he ended up committing suicide because he was outed as being gay. And in his honor, I just started volunteering at Nebraska AIDS Project and ended up doing a lot of fundraising and stuff for them. When I moved to Wichita, it was, believe it or not, and now it's not so good, <laughs> so good a place to be anything but straight Republican, but... Um, Back then, it was a pretty good place to be not straight and Republican in Wichita. And I owned a gay bookstore back then and made their public television station. I can't remember the call letters, but made them in, include gay programming um, after they said that they couldn't. And so they really could. They just didn't know they could. I was the first person to be a big brother, big sister who wasn't straight. Uh, had a gay foster kid who was also trans. And then we educated the school system about transgender issues, and they they had no clue, and they wish they had had a clue earlier, and nobody had tried to educate them. It was such a, such a simple thing, you know, but nobody had ever tried before. When I came back to uh, Lincoln, I was – my partner had four kids, and they were – one with special needs, two were Indian, um, Native American, and uh, – and two were African-American and white mixed. I mean, there was four children, but this was the, the ethnicity mix here. And then I was identified as, you know, looked like a lesbian. And she was. And so the um, the diversity board at the state level for Social Security and disability and the foster care system wanted to have us speak on the diversity panel board. Uh, just to give a talk about, you know, diverse parenting, that sort of thing. And then Governor Nelson personally disinvited us to talk because we weren't a protected class. 11 of the 13 people on the diversity board resigned in our honor. So that was pretty cool. I still have the political cartoons. <laughs> they are pretty nice. Um, organized a boardwalk fundraiser here and there. Um, there was this bar called The Precinct that shared a wall with the police station in Lincoln, and they wouldn't let drag queens come in and drag because they were afraid that the police couldn't get there fast enough. But they forgot that they shared a wall with the police station. And, you know, people just don't think when they make up excuses. So we did a uh, boycott and got them to change their policies. I mean, just, you know, small little things like that. Um, and I also – so I, I directed the Vagina Monologues five times and raised about $30,000 over the five five occasions and gave it to Voices of Hope, which is a uh, uh, domestic violence, somewhat of a shelter, but it's more of a crisis line and, and therapy place. Um, and just, you know, things like that. So the word hope there, it's – in many ways, been a wonderful life. You describe some aspects yeah. of your life that have been just idyllic. You mm -hmm. use that word and, and amazing. But clearly, you've also had many tragedies and traumas and difficult moments as well. And I wonder what words of hope you would offer to anybody listening to this show who at this point is not quite 
aware of the journey they're undertaking right now. They know that perhaps they're not identifying in a way that society expects them to, and how you would offer them some sort of insight or suggestion or words of optimism. I suppose this goes for anybody that's experiencing a difficult transition in whatever they're going through. But, And this sounds so cliche and sugary sweet and stuff, but people that are experiencing a hard time or, or depression or anxiety or just weird choices and they struggle with making the right decisions, um, going forward and experiencing the journey at the time can be extremely excruciating and can be hard and horrible, you know, but I would not give up any of the ick for anything because um, it sucked when I was going through it. I had a horrible life at times, but I had a wonderful life at times. And all those horrible spots, in retrospect, have been useful because I've been able to use the experiences to save somebody's life a couple times. Um, and it sounds like it sounds cocky or like I'm being a bragger, but but I really have, you know, helped somebody else. And we never know how we can affect someone and we never know how these experiences will will build strength in ourselves and it really is true unless we get smacked by a bus or you know something like that that in 17 days or a year and a half from now it, it's going to be different i mean it might not get better incrementally you know like in huge leaps and bounds but it's going to be different and it's going to be better um eventually you know if that eventually is two days from now or a month from now it's going to be better and we're going to learn from our mistakes and we're going to be able to benefit somebody else from our mistakes too and that's all we have to keep in mind as we're going through it yeah this sucks now but the straw is a good decent quality straw and once we get done sucking it's going to be okay Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with C. Loof. C, thank you for sharing your story and being in conversation with us today. Thanks for having me. I was the only one in the family besides her that could fold a fitted sheet. Um, and I give classes on that, by the way. So look me up later if you have a problem with that. It's not the one with the uh, elasticated. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's a class worth doing. <laughs> Thank you, C. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>